The reading is taken from Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 to 31. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, my name's Mark, for um, those of you who don't know me. And um, Priscilla and I are uh, our members here, and we have been for um, just over six years now. So on the, um, on the lobby wall um, outside my school library um, many, many years ago, uh, there was a sledge. A strange thing to hang on a wall, you might think, but this was no ordinary sledge. I'm sounding a bit like a Marks and Spencer's advert now, aren't I? But um, anyway, it was a sledge that had been used on one of Ernest Shackleton's expeditions to Antarctica. That's a photograph of it. Now, Shackleton was an intrepid explorer. Uh, he journeyed to Antarctica on several occasions. Um, the sledge in question was used on his Nimrod expedition between 1907 and 1909, when he and three companions established a new record at the time by reaching 88 degrees south. They were just 97 miles from the, um, the South Pole. The description of the hardships that they endured during that journey are, are unbelievable, really. Harrowing, to say the very least. I think they had one packet of biscuits left between four of them for the last sort of three days or something. I mean, it's just, it's just extraordinary. 
the fact that they survived at all is nothing short of a miracle. But I can't help wondering why they did it. Why would you do that? Anyway, the, um, the sledge was given to the school by Eric Marshall. That's a photograph of him. Um, he, he was an old boy of the, of the school, and he was one of the men who set the record with Shackleton. Um, apparently, he did not get on at all with Shackleton, um, but was still a key member of the team. Again, that must have been quite, quite an interesting uh, dynamic, if you think about it. Two years with someone you absolutely hate, but there we go. Um, sadly, the, um, I say sadly, I don't think it was sadly for the school, but anyway, the school sold the sledge in 2019 and raised £115,000 for it. Um, so it no longer hangs on the library wall. They also sold a flag that was attached to the sledge, and I think they raised £60,000 for the flag. So um, I'm sure the funds were, um, were well used. But I do wonder why people like Shackleton and Marshall, what, what drove them to make those journeys? Why would they travel to the most inhospitable, furthest parts of the world? Well, they didn't have to do it, did they? They did it because it was there and because no one had done it before, I think, and they were just part of this sort of breed of, of rather extraordinary, mad sort of explorers. You still get a few of them around today. I mean, they'd all had privileged upbringings. They didn't have to go, but they still went. Other people, though, have had to make journeys, haven't they? And still do have to make journeys uh, to survive, not just because it's something they want to do. So although Shackleton and his, his sort of crew were just a few intrepid explorers, Mass journeying, so groups of people, it's part of our world's history. People have always journeyed from different parts of the world for whatever reason. And our country, Britain, it's a mixture of all sorts of peoples, isn't it? Um, people who journeyed here either peacefully or rather aggressively. Um, we had the Romans, Angles, Saxons, Vikings, they all came from other parts of Europe. And um, my distant ancestor, Gilbert de Venables, and I've not made him up, he, he really was somebody who was, who was alive. Um, he decided that East Sussex was a much nicer place to be than Normandy in 1066. And so made the journey across the channel with a load of fellow Normans. Um, he thought he was going on a day trip, but his best mate, Bill, had other ideas. So um, stayed for rather a longer than, than a day. Now, we've been looking at different types of journeys, aren't we, on, uh, on Sunday mornings. Uh, we've looked at Abram's journey, first of all, with all the risks that that entailed. A journey that was instigated by God and, um, and, and led to the nation of Israel. We've studied Jacob's journey of reconciliation and the name that God gave him, Israel. And today we're thinking about another a mass journey this time, the nation of Israel's journey to deliverance. So I'm just going to put the passage that was read to us a moment ago into context. And at the end of the book of Genesis, we read about a famine in Canaan, uh, and that was where Jacob and his family were living at the time. 
and he decided, um, with God's blessing, to take all of his extended family, about 70, into Egypt, where his son Joseph was actually second in command. And this, this journey, this earlier journey, was obviously a good decision because he thrived, his family thrived, and they became a nation. Now Israel, as the nation, lived in Egypt for about 400-odd years. They grew to about 3 million people. And their number was so great that Pharaoh became nervous, thinking that they might side with his enemies in time of, um, of war, and as a result, he enslaved them. He put them to work building cities and roads, and he confined, confined them to an area of Goshen, which was in the northeast of the country. And at the beginning of Exodus, we read that the slavery um, was ruthless. The lives of the Israelites were described as bitter. And as a result, they languished in misery and suffering, and their spirit was broken. But even in this pretty awful situation, they prospered. Their numbers continued to increase in spite of Pharaoh's best efforts. And this increasing population only made matters worse. And so the edict was given that all male Israelite babies were to be killed. But God had a plan, and he raised up a leader, a Hebrew baby who was adopted as a foundling from the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses encountered the angel of the Lord when he was older in the um, burning bush, and God spoke to him, calling him to rescue his people and to lead them to the promised land. Now, as you can imagine, this rescuing was not straightforward. It required quite a bit of help from God. But, ten plagues later, the Israelites were ready to set out for the promised land. Now, there was a direct route from northeast Egypt, where the Israelites were living, to Canaan, which was pretty much due east. And if you look at the, uh, the map that's on the screen, you'll see across the wilderness of Shur, this was the obvious geographical direction of travel. And so when Moses got his um, Garmin or TomTom sat-nav, whatever he had at the time, and plugged the um, sort of Canaan in, it would have given him that route. But God knew that this way was directly towards the Philistines. And he knew that his people would probably change their mind when confronted with that warlike lot. So he sent them towards the Red Sea. Not an obvious choice. And Moses' Garmin Satnav would have been screaming, please make a U-turn if possible. Please make a U-turn if possible. All the time. Fortunately, they had the holy satnav, not the Garmin. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night led the people to the Red Sea where they camped. And Pharaoh's heart had been hardened by this time 
and he was following his chariots, following with his chariots and his army. The Israelites were between a rock and a hard place. The Red Sea in front of them, the Egyptian army behind. And so we read this in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. So the nation of Israel set off on the newly formed dry land and were followed by the Egyptians. As they reached the other side, God told Moses to stretch his hand out again and the waters closed around the oncoming army, killing them all. At the end of the passage we read, when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. What a journey. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be an Israelite in the middle of all those people? Escaping from Pharaoh and his army, but crossing what had been a sea, a body of water, on dry ground. It must have been both terrifying and confusing. They must have wondered where the next danger was coming from. A fear of being killed by the advancing Egyptians, mixed up with a fear of being drowned if the walls of water on either side of them engulfed them. But the journey, however frightening, was, was totally pivotal in the history of Israel because it made a final break with the land of their captivity. There was no turning back once they'd crossed the sea. As the waters flowed back, the barrier that was the sea was re-erected. But they were now on the other side. They were now on the safe side with Egypt on the other side. Their old enslaved life was over. Now they were completely in God's hands, so they had to trust him to lead them to the promised land. So what can we take from this passage? What can we take from this narrative about the crossing of the Red Sea? How can we apply the journey of the Israelites to our lives today? Well, firstly, we see that God can and does make a way forward, even when the situation seems hopeless. The Israelites had the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind. No way forward, no way back. And they must have been terrified. There were voices in the crowd that said that they would actually have been better off in slavery. But God had a plan for all of them, and he parted the waters, creating a way forward where there had been none before. And I do think this is, this is a picture, quite an extreme picture, I grant you, but it's a picture of life. Now, we may not experience an aggressive army at our back, 
although there are members of our church who can testify to this experience. But we will often face times when our situation is very difficult. There seems to be no way forward or back. Perhaps it involves um, the loss of a job or sort of family strife. We can't see how we can progress. It seems impossible. And, you know, bridges might have been burnt. We, 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 just, we just can't reset the clocks and, and, and go back to what had happened before, even if this would appear to be attractive. So what can we do? What is to be done in a situation like this? How should we react when confronted with a seemingly impossible situation? Now, there is a huge temptation, isn't there, to think that we can, we can overcome everything in our own strength. We can succeed against the odds if we just try a bit harder. And, and you know, we might solve a problem if we try harder, if we work a bit harder, if we, if we just sort of give a bit more effort in our own strength. But there may well be a bigger issue around the corner once the first bit is solved. And speaking personally, there have been several instances in, in Priscilla and my, our, our married life when we face situations with, with, with no discernible way forward, a situation that, was, that, that came sort of pretty much out of the blue, but, but you know, you could, we couldn't actually see how things were going to shape up in the future. But after prayer and thoughtful reflection, a way became clear. God found a way for us. And we can point very clearly to God's hand being at work as we were able to move forward on our life journey. God can do anything. I really believe that. Now, he simply could have picked up the nation of Israel in his hands and deposited them on the other side. Job done, no messing, stop messing around, you know, no, no, no waste of time. But why didn't he? Well, the passage tells us that the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left, and a passageway was formed through the sea for the people. They did not even need to get their feet wet. But, this is the big but, they still had to walk through that water, water on either side, with faith, trusting that God would, co would continue to hold the water back. And when you're trapped, when, we, you know, when we're trapped in circumstances, God will make a way for us, but... Following that way will require faith. We may have to make hard decisions. We may have to eat humble pie. Um, we might have to admit to somebody that we were wrong. That's something that I find quite difficult. We may have to let go of things that are very dear to us. God does not promise that following him will be easy. Far from it. But he does promise to go with you on your journey. 
you don't have to travel alone. Isaiah 43, in Isaiah 43, God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. But finally, I think we, um, we should learn discernment. I think we should learn, and we need to learn, to discern God's will for us and not just to presume that we know best. I know personally, again, I've often wondered when I've been faced with important decisions, whether the decisions I make are God's will or are they Mark's will? Is God just an afterthought or no thought? And in our, in our, our, our narrative, two peoples the Israelites and the Egyptians, they both walked through the parted waters, didn't they? They both walked through the Red Sea. One of them walked in faith, and one just presumed that everything would be okay. Well, we know what happened to them both, don't we? Very, very different outcomes. The people with, who walked in faith made it to the other side. The people who presumed that everything was going to be okay we're all drowned. So how do we know if we're following God's will or not? Well, again, speaking personally, if I may, I've found that when we have prayed together about a situation and made a decision that we believed was of God, we have had complete peace. And that's not just a one-off. It's quite amazing how, how God just has given us peace about the future, even when things seem very scary. But discernment is not just passive. I don't think we're called to sit back and let things just fall into our laps. The Israelites didn't just sit on the bank and say, OK, I'm here now rescue us. They had to walk. They had to actually have faith and walk through the waters. And we need to be active, don't we? We need to be pushing doors, but seeking God's wisdom as to the right course of action in our lives. And of course, discerning God's will does require a relationship with him. It's very difficult to determine somebody's will if you don't know them. We need to have faith as we step forward in life and as we face the future. So God delivered the Israelites and although we are unlikely, I think, to face the same situation as Moses and his people did, we all need God's deliverance in one form or another, don't we? We will all at some time face situations when we're trapped by circumstances where we cannot see a way out. 
And at those times, we need to remember that God is our deliverer, not just a deliverer for people thousands of years ago. And when we're trapped, we need to trust in him. We need to trust in God who will make a way when there seems to be no way forward. Now, this way will undoubtedly require faith. It may not be easy. But if you trust him, God will travel your journey with you. And as Moses said to his people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart.
Yeah. 